these rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. A show about all things from the perspective of two revolutionary vegan women. I'm Maureen. And I'm Mexi. And today we're going to be talking about the domestication of animals and how we feel about that as vegans and to what extent we can consider domesticated animals to be in a symbiotic relationship with human beings. Mm-hmm. And this came from a, a series of questions from one of our listeners because we we asked you all to send in questions. So thank you to everyone who sent in great questions. We got a number of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, if we don't answer your question today, we'll keep those on file. There were a lot of great ones. We're going to revisit this format in the future. So we'll get to your questions eventually. Um, but Julian asked so many great questions about the domestication of animals that we thought we better do a full vi- or podcast on this. Yep. So first of all, we have a number of patrons to shout out. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated within the last few weeks. So first of all, Helena has edited their pledge yet again to donate even more per month. So thank you so much, Mm -hmm. Helena. That's amazing. Um, We have Katie Shockley, Stefan, (laughs) someone whose screen name is Dave Rubin is far right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Camilla and Zen. So thank you so wow. much, everyone. Thank yeah, you so much. So many. so many this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you'd like to support the show, you can support us via Patreon um, at Vegan Vanguard, or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com. So I'm first going to read out the question. You could argue that humans and domesticated animals have a mutually beneficial relationship instead of an exploitative one if you ignore factory farming, or let's say the last hundred years, and view it from an evolutionary perspective. If you have some cows and sheep grazing on land that for some reason is not used to grow crops, example mountainous terrain, bad soil, and those animals are protected from predators and risks of malnutrition, they suffer way less than they would in the wild even if their wool, milk, or their flesh is eventually harvested by their human overlords. Also, our domesticated animals would not even exist as species slash races without us interfering and breeding them. Of course, the very existence of many modern races is just atrocious, like the chickens whose legs can't support their body weight, but again, I'm talking more in an evolutionary timescale. We would certainly be significantly less well-off without domesticated animals, and in a sense, we can only now, in postmodern times, choose not to quote-unquote use animals without this decision heavily impeding societal development or living standards. I'm sure Mexi, with her interest in geography, knows guns, germs, and steel. So the questions are, would you want the domesticated races to simply die out, like after we achieve full communism and everybody has gone vegan, for example, even horses? How do you feel about humans engaging in a kind of idealized farming? Would you agree with me that in traditional farming, animals suffer less than they do in the wild? Would you want family farmers in third world countries or pastoral nomads to give up their lifestyles so as to not exploit animals anymore? This is more than one question, but I think the overarching theme is obvious. 
So yeah, I think that's such a great question. Such a great question. The way that we're going to break it down is that first, Mexi is going to give us a brief overview of the origins of domestication and how it first started a very, very long time ago. This mm-hmm. is quite general, but you'll get into the specifics. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, hill people and hill tribes and the link between civilization and agriculture. Then we're going to talk about the mutually dependent and beneficial relationships between humans and other animals. And then we're going to talk about the domestication of pets mm-hmm. and uh, what, you know, if we think that those species should be forced to go extinct um, because they're quote unquote unnatural and, you know, all the ethical questions that surround that. Yes. All right. So I suppose diving into the history. So just I thought this was such a great question, um, especially thinking about the symbiotic relationship between humans and other animals, um, because it's true that domestication started as a pretty symbiotic relationship. So the first animals to be domesticated were wolves, actually, and those, you know, uh, developed into the proto dogs that we have now and then just dogs. Um but it's interesting that uh, there's a difference between domestication and taming, um, which I didn't actually, I wasn't quite aware of this actually. Mm-hmm. Taming is when you condition the behavior of wild animals to not be, um, to not have that fight or flight response or to be more comfortable around humans. Whereas domestication is actually, you know, breeding certain individuals with other individuals to create, you know, a a group of animals that either, well, that are, that don't have that fight or flight mode um, and that are more accepting of being around humans, but that also perhaps have traits that humans would find um, either better to exploit, I suppose, Mm -hmm. or just, you know, um, better to have around. So there's a difference between, for example, like elephants in a lot of Southeast Asian countries, um, they're tame in the, in the sense that they like accept human presence and, um, you know, humans do use them for a number of things, but humans don't necessarily control their breeding. So they wouldn't be considered domesticated. Um, Mm. So the first domesticated animals, as I said, were wolves. And this started before, long before agriculture. This started like upwards of 30,000 years ago um, in the last, you know, ice age. Um, So we're talking about hunter-gatherers. We're talking about, um, you know, early human societies. And they would obviously um, form communities and hunt together and, you know, would have fires and, and camps together. And so wolves would benefit from, you know, if these humans had come together and hunted something, then the wolves would benefit by being able to scavenge from that carcass. Um, So wolves are just, you know, the ones that didn't have that high of a fight or flight mode would be hanging around the human camps. They would be around the human campfires. They would be um, benefiting from what the humans are doing. And the humans in turn would be benefiting from having these wolves or proto dogs around because they would provide protection um, against other animals that would come to try to attack them. Um, And they could actually, in some instances, use the wolves or dogs to help them hunt other animals. And so that really developed as a pretty symbiotic relationship. And that's how we have 
dogs today, right? Um, so there are several different pathways that I'll say um, led to domestication. So so the example of wolves and dogs would be an example of the commensal pathway, where you had certain animals that would form these relationships with humans, um, where both benefited. Um, you know, humans received no harm, um, but benefit, and same with the animals. So things like this include dogs, cats, um, certain fowl, um, possibly pigs, um, but they, they fall more into the prey pathway. Um, the prey pathway would be animals like cattle, sheep, goats, buffalo, etc. Um, so as we moved forward in history and we saw the commencement of agriculture, which commenced, by the way, in Mesopotamia, in, which was um, ancient Iraq, um, and uh, and in Egypt, so in, in the Nile Valley in, in Mesopotamia, then we started to see animals domesticated through the directed pathway and the prey pathway. So the directed pathway would be animals such as horses, donkeys, oxen, um, animals that would help humans plow or do other, uh, do other things that they needed to survive, but they weren't actually prey animals. They weren't considered food animals. Um, and then the prey pathway, obviously, as I said, would be sheep, goats, cattle. So this really advanced when we got into um, agricultural societies where you would have people just, uh, you know, keeping cattle or sheep, etc. But then actually harvesting from them either their wool or, you know, killing them for prey. Um, so I feel like the question of, you know, domestication and um, whether we can consider domesticated in animals being in a symbiotic relationship, I feel like we have to take a look at exactly how they've been domesticated and like through what pathway. Because in my opinion, obviously the commensal and the directed pathways have more of a, a symbiotic feel to them. And that has to do with, you know, the history of how they were developed, um, but also the fact that we're not preying on them. We're not killing them and eating their bodies. Um, the prey pathway in terms of, in envisioning that as a symbiotic kind of relationship, I mean, you can make the argument that, sure, if you release these cattle or these sheep into the wild, then they would probably be preyed upon by, um, by other animals. But I, I, I can't... I can't get my head around the idea that killing them yourself is somehow more ethical or better than that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think of two kind of counter examples, like let's say we're going to make the same argument with dogs, you know? So I have, I have two dogs or my parents have two dogs that I love very much. And if we release them into the wild, then surely, yeah, they would be, you know, they would be preyed upon by other animals or they just wouldn't really survive. So does that mean that if I killed my own dog, that's better? That's somehow, uh, you know, a better relationship that we have? I, I'm really not sure. Right. If you think could, I have a question. Could you argue mm -hmm. that the people who domesticated, you know, this prey domestication that you're talking about, did they rely on the killing and the breeding of these animals to survive? Or were they as detached of of that need as you would be if you killed your dogs? 
That's a good point. So, well, I mean, yeah, in a lot of these early societies, I suppose they would have been um, dependent on killing them and eating them. Um, But then when we get into, like, when we get into bigger scale domestication and bigger scale operations of, like, food production Mm -hmm. today, right, then that's kind of when we get into, um, like, a lot of farmers today, even if they're not, like, a mega factory farm, um, you know, we're not talking about subsistence anymore. We're talking about something that's like enmeshed within capitalism and done basically like for profit. Um, That just to me doesn't seem like it should fall under the same word or category of domestication. mm -hmm, That's true. So I guess the point here is that there's a number, like when we talk about domestication, there's like a number of things that we could be talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we could be talking about, as said in the question, you know, pastoralist nomads in northern Siberia, or we could be talking about, you know, a a mega farm that's operating, like, killing cattle for profit. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I feel like there's different relationships, but in terms of how I see symbiosis, I mean, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. I'm I'm sure there's examples of all three that we could say would be more symbiotic than, than other examples, but I guess I would consider the commensal and directed pathways to be just more inherently symbiotic than the prey pathway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I cut you off because you said there were two parallels you wanted to make. So you've made one. Oh, uh, well, the other, well, it doesn't really make sense anymore. Cause like your point was pretty valid. Cause I was going to say the same thing. It's like, okay, well, I, if I take care of a number of children, like if I release these children, if I release these children to the wild, then they would die. So does that mean that like, if I kill the child, then there, we have a better relationship, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, as you said, there's different reasons why people might be killing their domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk a bit about the relationship between civilization and agriculture. Historically, we have come to think about agriculture and civilization to be inextricably linked, so that agriculture brings about civilization and that civilization also needs agriculture um, to to build itself uh, because agriculture allows a food surplus and so it allows population growth. But even if we consider that agriculture brings about civilization, that we have to ask yourself, what does civilization really mean? Civilization in Western history has been very associated to culture and progress and advancement. Um, But we could also link civilization to state control. We can consider that the creation of the state always involves some form of coercion. So sometimes that coercion is through the army or through taxes. Well, I would say most most oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so states require a sedentary population to produce food, which is why in turn they, they need an army and they need taxes um, mm-hmm. to enforce exploitative labor relations of agricultural production in order mm-hmm. to, to produce this food surplus and to have control over it. So that also leads to um, property rights and most often patriarchy mm-hmm. um, and, you know, a whole bunch of nasty hierarchical relationships that oppress certain people while mm-hmm. privileging others. Yeah. Um, and so 
I'm going to talk about a book uh, by James Scott, who's an anarchist anthropologist. So he wrote a book uh, called The Art of Not Being Governed, where he notably looks at um, hill hill tribes in Southeast Asia and Southern China, uh, this whole area that he that is called Zomia, that is relatively stateless. Um, and throughout his book, he makes the argument that hill people are not people left behind by civilization um, as we would traditionally see it. So the, the history that we've been taught is that hill people are, are usually come to civilization because they want to assimilate and benefit from all the great things that civilization will offer them, um, such as culture and progress and surplus food. However, we've also seen that civilization can be a can be equated with state control and thus be synonymous with exploitation and coercion. So it really flips the narrative on its head uh, when you think about civilization in that way. Um, and so James Scott explains that hill people uh, are not people who have been left behind by civilization, but rather people who have made a conscious choice to avoid it. And mm -hmm. a lot of times they were uh, refugees basically who ran away from slavery or other coercive uh, systems and mm -hmm. that by by living in the hills they are much more difficult to access and control by the state mm -hmm. so i was just thinking about how you know we have been we're like a product of a civilization like civilization mm -hmm. is all that i i know and same civilization when you take into account how rooted and dependent it is on agriculture and on animal exploitation you really realize that our entire everything that we know is founded in the exploitation of animals and mm -hmm. in this relationship between us and the animal kingdom that is absolutely not symbiotic mm -hmm. and that is inherently exploitative. And so that's sort of the only way that I know how to relate to animals or at mm -hmm. least, you know, that's hegemonically how I've been so taught to think about them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, hill people or uh, nomadic tribes who have a very different relationship with nature and with animals and who actually, you know, use or benefit from or engage with animals in a way that's directly tied to their subsistence and to their emancipation from a exploitative coercive system. Mm -hmm. If, I mean, they must have such a different way of conceiving of animals and of conceiving of nature. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like my relationship with animals or all of our relationships with animals and with nature has been so colonized. Um, and even more so if you understand where civilization like came from mm -hmm. that, that, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was just a whole roundabout way to say that, like, I don't know. I'm sure there's so many different like ways and constellations, um, through which we could relate to animals, but that I don't really have access to those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Same here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for a lot of us, the only way we even can think about meat is through going to a grocery store and buying this packaged up, super sanitized. Like, we don't see the animal in that at all. And mm -hmm. like, no, purposely so. Like, we don't, we have no connection to whatever animal brought us that meat at all. So, 
yeah, I mean, it's almost hard. It's, it's definitely hard to try and get into the mind space of someone who has been brought up a completely different way and who has, you know, a completely different experience with animals and domestication. Um, right. And, and our relationship with speciesism or with the use of animals is so tied to our like enslavement to the system of capitalism. Yes. Um, and hypothetically their relationship, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the relationship to animals that like nomadic tribes have is linked to their emancipation and, and Mm -hmm. it's so, and, and their sustainable way of life. So Mm -hmm. it just must be like so different. Girl, that is such a good point. That just blew my mind. Like, yeah, absolutely. Our relationship with meat is mediated through alienation and fetishization. We have, we have no connection to it at all. And yeah, it's absolutely just, it's a commodity to us. And that's our Mm -hmm. only, that's our, our only relationship to both animals and meat. Whereas in some cultures, especially cultures that are, you know, practicing subsistence livelihoods in an effort to avoid exploitation and stateship and capitalism. Yeah. Then like that relationship could look much different. Um, that's not to say, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Because like as vegans, it's hard to say that, that we would ever really condone, (laughs) you know, like keeping and killing animals. But this is just to say that, you know, we're not about to sit here from our like white suburban perspective and try to say that, you know, we can, we can understand every perspective that there is to have on domestication and every relationship that there is to have, um, between humans and animals. Exactly. And formulating an argument about other ways to relate to animals would be so, is so like myopic, like obviously their way to relate to animals is also imbued in the way that they relate to everything else that Mm -hmm. we also don't have access to. Mm -hmm. Like we're so fucking colonized by, yeah, white supremacy and patriarchy and by colonization and by speciesism, honestly, and by Mm -hmm. like civilization and state coercion and Mm -hmm. the list is endless. Yeah that i don't know it's just not really it's just not really our place but i also don't see it as productive for us to have any kind of opinion about it because that opinion is will be wrong like will be uninformed no absolutely and i mean that's not to say like that's not to excuse that's not to let people off the hook who are you know living in white suburbia and hearing us talk about oh, this. Yeah. And, and Oh, I thought you were about to say this, not to let people off the hook who are living in hills. And I was like, I'm so confused. <laughs> Where are we going with this? <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's not to let like our listeners off the hook who no, are definitely just living in a suburban Y'all are fucking setting. colonized by white supremacy and capitalism. And capitalism, and right. technology, if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. So that's not to say that, you know, if you're currently buying your meat from a grocery store, then you should continue doing that. Like, not no, at all. No. Because your relationship with food is not – your relationship with that meat is not a form of resistance to capitalism or the state at all. Um, As a matter of fact, it's <laughs> – exactly the opposite it is exactly the opposite and so that's why we're advocating for like veganism as anti-capitalist practice and anti-capitalist practice as vegan practice um but we're just talking about like other relationships that we could be having you know Mm -hmm. Um, totally 
that reminds me of a bit of my experience in Thailand. Um, so for my master's, I, well, in my PhD, but for my master's specifically, I did research up in the hills of Northern Thailand. Um, which I mean, like, by the way, I mean, when James Scott was writing his book, it's, uh, it's a bit older now, but, um, his conception of Zomia was all of these, uh, highland areas in across Southeast Asia that were, you know, relatively stateless. I feel like today it's not quite the case. Um, there are still some areas that are relatively stateless, but I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of places have been colonized, if you will. Um, but yeah, in, in, uh, Northern Thailand, I was living in a Karin Hill Tribe Village in a national park in the north. Um, and the Karin tribe there were animist Buddhist. They were they were traditionally um, subsistence farmers, but they practice wooden cultivation. So that's when you mm, oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you cut an area of forest down and then you burn it and then you um, grow crops on that area and then you leave that fallow. You leave that to grow back for several years and then you kind of rotate your your areas where you cut down the trees and, and grow your crops. And it's actually been, I mean, a lot of research has gone into how actually sustainable that is and how it actually helps the forest because when you burn it, um, I mean, forests actually need to be burnt and then regrow because mm -hmm. um, if you leave a forest for too long and, and there's no fire, then the underbrush doesn't develop and then like different species are affected or whatever, right? So when they were kind of brought into the fold of the Thai state, um, especially since they were living in a national park, they were... Uh, you know, vilified for doing this wooden cultivation. So they were forced to become sedentary paddy rice farmers. Um, so that's what they're doing now. Um, but they were largely, I mean, they were largely just abandoned by the state. I mean, they were locked in this, um, in this national park. Um, in a lot of national parks, they actually evicted a lot of the, the forest dwelling communities who live there because they thought, oh, we're going to conserve nature here, which... Uh, is ridiculous, but I, you know, I, I can't get into that now. Um, but however, they were, you know, largely relying on subsistence. And so in order to plow their fields, they use buffalo, water buffalo. Um, in their culture, it's typical that um, they build their houses up on stilts. And then every mm -hmm. household typically has at least one pig and chickens. And yeah, I mean, they, they, they use um, water buffalo often either as like they'll keep herds and then sell them or, you know, they'll use them to, to help with their agriculture, etc. Um, and they just have a completely different understanding of their place in nature. Like they don't consider themselves to be separate separate and distinct from nature and so they consider themselves themselves to be part of that overall ecosystem and so to them the idea of not practicing swooden cultivation is ridiculous because you know they're part of that ecosystem um and they played a large role in producing it and producing the kind of forests and wilderness and everything that you know was so wonderful that the state wanted to protect it as a national park um but now they're being forced to adhere to these you know whatever different rules but yeah i mean just their complete different understanding of themselves and their relations to animals and everything else um yeah i mean it would be very difficult for me to say like oh yeah no everyone should give up their pig and chickens and you know you should just 
plow your fields by yourself like don't use water buffalo don't you know what i mean i mean it would just be very difficult for me to come in there and try and say anything um especially Mm -hmm. because they they really do have such so little other options um Mm -hmm. in terms of meeting their livelihoods um but also because they've been you know they understand their environment a lot more than than we would right so like coming in from the outside and trying to say that this is not right is i mean i think ridiculous for anyone to try to do um Having said that, I, I think it is really interesting that even in that context, there are people who are conscious vegetarians. I mean, there's the monk that lives in that village is a vegetarian because, um, uh, you know, a lot of Buddhist monks do take that route. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting that even people in in growing up in that kind of a situation could still imagine themselves or could still want to eat a vegetarian um, diet. But But, yeah, that's just to say that. I feel like the people who try and impose their own values on, on all these other people aren't very well traveled or like, are you know, just mm-hmm. have a hard time empathizing or, or seeing outside of their own like colonized mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. That was so interesting. Mm-hmm. It must've been like a pretty incredible experience yeah, it was to a, get to stay amazing. in that national park. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my viewers reached out to me. This was like months ago, maybe a year ago, but she was an anthropologist who studied food sustainability and agricultural practices. Mm -hmm. And she shared so much amazing information with me. So I went back into that conversation and read the crap out of it today (laughs) and um, picked out some some of the points that were most interesting to me. So, uh, you know, she explained that for over 12,000 plus years of agriculture, the basis for most of our diets worldwide, as well as medicines, biofuels and fibers was born of sedentization, soil manipulation, animal domestication and eventually imported resources. And some of the arguments in James Scott's book she found a little bit problematic because she wondered if it's just asserting that indigenous food choices are simply a reaction to conquering forces Mm. um, and said that that was also reproducing a sort of colonial vision of Mm -hmm. of the state of affairs, which I thought was a good point. Mm -hmm. Um, But she said that the food web's fundamental principle is that nothing is created or destroyed, only transformed, which mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense, right? You need to provide, you can't just take and take from nature, you need to also provide inputs because mm-hmm. everything is circular and nothing is going to be produced without being, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. You Energy just, is never created or destroyed, it just circulates or whatever. Exactly. There yeah. are no free resources, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, that death and decay provide and sustain life. And that in order to grow food, you need to replenish nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium into the ground, mm-hmm. which doesn't naturally occur in very large quanti- in the very large quantities that would be needed to sustain a Western plant-based diet, mm-hmm. um, as we as we vegans have, for example. Mm-hmm. And she was explaining that indigenous people have traditionally hunted, fished, gathered, and practiced some form of horticulture and aquaculture um, Mm -hmm. for for all of history. And there there was an she brought up an example which I thought was really interesting and and um, is similar, I feel like, to some of what you were saying earlier about these nomadic hill tribes in Thailand or 
they're not nomadic anymore, you said. But. No, they're sedentary, <laughs> but yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that as vegans, for example, we may reject and condemn the labor and the burden of water buffaloes plowing the fields for rice. But think about India, the largest vegetarian population we know of. Um, mm-hmm. Think about the sacred cow and all that it offers them. It's not just milk. Dung, manure is essential to the vegetables they grow. Mm -hmm. They use it in home construction and in some areas burn it for heat and more importantly use it for cooking fuel. So what is the cost to, um, what is the cost and benefit analysis of this Mm -hmm. Um, and how exploitative or how mutually beneficial is this relationship? I mean, definitely, um, surely on a more large scale level, um, that is a much more sustainable way to live and also a much kinder Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. to live for our ecosystem. And so as a result, of course, for animals as well, than industrialized farming, Mm -hmm. um, even, uh, even with a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, I feel like that is such a good point that vegans, don't talk about ever. Like, I feel like vegans Mm, always just kind of throw out that line of like, everyone needs to go vegan and that'll solve all the problems in the world. It'll solve the planetary problem. It'll solve your health problems. It'll solve like every problem, like animal ethics, animal rights. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, we have to think about the inputs. We have to think about how are we going to farm all of this um, without animals, without animals being a Mm -hmm. part of this. And Mm -hmm. I mean, as we just talked about, if you think about our history, I mean, we've never done this without animals. Even if we were just farming vegetables, we haven't done this without the help of animals or without being in relationship with other animals, right? Right. Yeah. And even, I mean, there is veganic farming, which vegans bring up all the time. Um, And veganic farming is possible, but it also takes up more energy and and more work and more land, like especially Mm. more land. Yeah. Um, and you can also use uh, seaweed to as as um, fertilizer, but seaweed. I mean, first of all, it's not applicable to any region of the world, um, and it's also like seaweed is someone else's home, right? It, it's in yeah. someone else's environment, so I don't. I'm sure it's sustainable in some cases, but I mean, mm-hmm. it definitely can't replace like animal manure on a global scale especially with what's happening to our oceans right now like our oceans are dying so like we can't rely on that right um but for like on the other hand you could think about keeping chickens in your backyard which would provide which provides fantastic manure Mm -hmm. and it would require less resources and disturb less habitats and also give you a higher protein return for much less space if you just eat an egg every once in a while, for example. Mm-hmm. And in addition, their manure will help you grow your own vegetables. Um, so it's a great source of nitrogen and um, potassium and all those things that I was talking about earlier. I mean, I'm no expert in this. <laughs> like, as I said, this this viewer really helped inform me. So I'm just relaying the information and giving it as like food for thought. Um, I'm by no by no means saying I'm like an authority on like vegan and veganic or any kind of other farming. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it's interesting to think about because it really like being at least being approached by someone who had such incredibly enriching knowledge about different <laughs> agricultural practices throughout the world and who really had like a deep understanding of how to enrich the soil and how to grow your mm-hmm. foods and what that meant for your environment was like really humbling 
mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because I was like, fuck, I need to think about this more. Yeah. Um, they actually had, uh, like when I was going through at U of T, I was taking like environmental studies or environmental anthropology. And, uh, uh, at that time in Toronto, there was actually this environmental movement of people who really wanted to push the city to allow people to have backyard chickens um, mm. because they said that would be so much better, so much more environmental for, first of all, people to be getting their eggs that way and not through the, you know, factory farmed chicken coops, which are just fucking disgusting. I mean, just absolutely horrifying, like just horrid um so it would be better than that but also yeah as you're saying it would be better um environmentally if people wanted to grow food in their backyards etc so there was a big movement around that but i feel like the uh the city of toronto uh didn't actually allow that at the time but i I feel like we should push for that again um or just just push for more um yeah more allowances for people to actually do things more you know self-sustainably and it's interesting that as a vegan who's incredibly passionate about animal rights you would consider something like that i think Mm -hmm. that a lot of vegans they're so focused on this they're just so focused on having a plant-based diet and the the ills of the the meat industry which are certainly just horrid as you Mm -hmm, said mm -hmm. and very legitimate that they don't see how inextricably tied their diet is to industrialized farming that's Mm -hmm. incredibly unsustainable Mm -hmm. and how reliant it is on animal manure Mm -hmm. now of course that's not that's not to say that even if our diets are dependent on animal manure to some extent it it excuses the the horrors of the meat industry in in any way but um yeah that that we do need to think about that we do need to reconcile the fact that a symbiotic relationship with animals doesn't mean just going vegan in industrialized nations mm-hmm. and having a plant-based diet that you get from the grocery store mm-hmm. yeah no absolutely well i think a lot of vegans um i mean like if you have a relationship with an animal in which you are benefiting in any way, I mean, I feel like you could make the argument that like, oh, this is exploitative, right? So if you think about backyard chickens, I feel like there are a lot of vegans who would be like, oh, well, that's not right because like you're keeping that chicken there or whatever, you know, but it's like, well, also this chicken is like having a pretty sweet life in my backyard, like with no predators, Mm -hmm. like no predators, like I'm not killing the chickens. I'm letting them like have their babies and run around and do whatever they want. And I'm taking a couple unfertilized eggs every once in a while uh, you know what I mean so um I don't know I mean I mean it's fine I, I also you know if you're a vegan if, and if you really just feel like that kind of relationship is is not something that you would be okay with that's also fine I just feel like if we're actually like if we're trying to find global solutions for the planetary crisis for you know animal enslavement and animal rights and animal animal liberation and everything like that then um then yeah i mean i i don't really foresee a a future where we don't have relationships with animals in which we are going to benefit in some way but they are also Mm -hmm. going to benefit in some way i mean we're part of an ecosystem so but it's about reevaluating that relationship and you know what i mean um Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we shouldn't let the meat industry define the whole of how we could possibly relate to animals and live in symbiosis with them or, mm-hmm. or use them. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's allowing ourselves to 
be recolonized. Yeah. No, exactly. Like if we think about, because I feel like, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of vegans wouldn't eat eggs, I feel like, because they think it's not healthy and they think it's, and it's weird and whatever. It's like a chicken's period. And like, yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, like I agree as like a vegan who just like yeah. consumes from the convenience of my own supermarket, I'd never eat eggs. But. Right. So, I mean, I understand people like having that feeling or being like, oh, you know, gross or whatever. Um, but at the same time, we can't, think of what happens in an industrialized chicken or like, you know, egg production facility. We can't equate that with what happens in, you know, someone having a backyard chicken. It's just not even close to the same thing. But I feel no. like, I feel like a lot of vegans are, are like, oh, it's the same. You know what I mean? Like you're still exploiting it. You're still eating eggs. That's, that's gross. That's wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But I just, I just feel like there's a huge difference in the relationship there. First of all, it's, mm-hmm. it's not capitalist. It's not that you're treating these, you know, animal bodies as commodities. Or- right. And there's an exchange between you and the chicken that is just not monetary. Exactly. It's not monetary at all. It's just a relationship. Like, right. Um, whereas if you're buying it from, uh, yeah, like a capitalist source, then they are, of course, they're breeding these chickens so that they lay so many eggs that their bodies can't even support them. And they're getting sick and they're dying in there. And then they're killing all the male chicks. Like that's fucked up. Right. But I mean, you can't really, you can't let that, like how horrible the production of eggs is in that situation, make us think that anyone like these, these hill tribes in Thailand who have chickens and eat the eggs, like there's no comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not possible for us to remove ourselves fully from having some kind of relationship with animals Mm -hmm. or of them having some sort of relationship with us. Mm -hmm. I do feel like, although in the abstract, all of these arguments make a lot of sense to me and they are very legitimate questions that I honestly don't know how to answer. Like what would a more sustain, what would a sustainable relationship with animals truly look like? I feel like we've just fucked shit up so much, honestly. And we're so many at this point. We're like seven or eight or nine billion people. I think like seven, but you know, I feel like it changes like every other week. Um, that I've heard that now the reality of our global population and food sources like could never be met without industrialized farming. Well, see, I make that argument. Um, but I make that argument to say that we shouldn't be eating animals. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So like, Uh, no, like, no. And the amount of meat that an American eats versus even a European versus someone from Africa is such a huge difference, right? Um, mm-hmm. So if we're thinking of trying to meet the needs of 7.5 billion people eating an American meat-heavy diet, no, there's no fucking way we can do that. But I argue that like we really shouldn't be eating the meat unless it's like ex- extremely sparingly or like for some tribes or whatever, they're not, they're not going to stop eating meat. But like, you know, we shouldn't, we should be viewing that as a reason to stop consuming so much meat, but we could have these other, like, as we said, like backyard chickens, we could have other ways of having relationships with animals that would still provide us with sustenance or that would help us to grow our vegetable crops in ways that actually help to provide those inputs into the soil that we need um, that could, yeah. And then, then that, that's how we could sustain like this huge population because all of that land space that's now going to feed animals to like going to feed animals on food lots that could be converted into, you know, 
uh, food for people Mm -hmm. or just forests because we have so much more of it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I I think that's a great reason why we should reduce or eliminate our meat consumption. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that we would necessarily eliminate, you know, having domesticated animals. Yeah. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. I guess I was just, I was also just referring to the whole argument of how farming would look if it wasn't so mechanized and it was more sustainable and it was more local and based on a symbiotic relationship. Sometimes I feel like the possibility of going back to that is not very feasible with how things are going and how many people we are. But I, I don't, think that's a reason to keep animal farming. I'm just wondering if, um, you know, veganism in an industrialized way is, is unavoidable. Do you know what I mean? Um, I feel like considering 70% of like the cereal grains, for example, that are grown in the United States go to feeding animals. I mean, that's a a massive amount of land space. I think it's like 50% of the land space is used in... I think, yeah, a third of the land space worldwide is literally... Yeah, but I mean like 50% is used in America and then like only like 1% of that is actually like crops that people eat. Mm, So I feel mm -hmm. like people make a big deal about population where I think think the problem is capitalism and I think the problem is the way that we're using our resources. So I feel as though even even as much as we are in our population in the world today, I feel like if we were not operating on a for-profit basis and if we were not consuming meat, like if we greatly, if we were consuming like five to 10% of the meat that we're consuming today, then of course we could sustain ourselves and we we could think about things that are more sustainable and more local and more, you know, mm-hmm. symbiotic. Mm-hmm. And side rant, <laughs> this unleashed growth of population under capitalism is because capitalism requires population growth to satisfy yes. its exponential growth forever and ever. Like mm-hmm. we need a constantly increasing exploitative labor force mm-hmm. and also people to consume in order to keep going with a capitalist system. So yeah, that's one of the most troubling people, things. Yeah, people who argue for capitalism because it's the only way to s- satisfy this population growth. Mm-hmm. I want to be like, mm-hmm. hello, yeah. like this population growth is never going to stop because yeah. you keep pushing capitalism in order to sustain it. Oh, yeah, so like annoying. places like Japan and Germany or whatever, where they're seeing actually a decline in population, they're seeing um, people having fewer and fewer kids. It's causing so many economic problems because there's no young people to come up through the workforce. Yeah. And yeah. And so people are actually thinking now about like how we need to increase our population, we need to sustain our population and grow it. Of course. Because you can't have a growing pop you can't have a growing economy without a growing population. And that is so fucking disturbing to me. It is so mm-hmm. disturbing. Especially mm-hmm. when people try to say, like, oh, overpopulation is the problem. And I'm like, well then capitalism is the problem. Yeah. yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah. How are you gonna satisfy a system of like unleashed exponential growth without a growing population? Seriously. Huh? Huh? No. How? You're not. And you're not even going to do it anyway, because we don't have the biophysical resources to do it. God. 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 (laughs) This wine is getting to my head. Yeah, we've decided to drink wine during this episode, so. This is the first time I'm drinking wine during an episode. (laughs) I I gotta say that Maxie was, yeah, it was really... (laughs) 
partly to blame for this decision. Yeah, it, I'm not it regretting it, but I feel like it loosens you up. But it just it, it has the uh, the effect of just tongue tying me and making me less coherent. I disagree. Only the playback of this episode will tell me if that's true. I think you're gonna love it when you play it back. I think it's great. <laughs> This is reminding me. We don't have to include this. But like when you go to the hairdressers and and the hairdresser keeps saying like how amazingly they're cutting your hair and it's like totally a way to make you think that they're doing a good job. I feel like this is what we're doing with the podcast. They're like, you're yeah. going to love this yeah. when you listen to Yeah, it's and then amazing. you finish it after and you're just like, I hate it, but you don't know what to say. And you're just like, okay, I guess it's <laughs> Because they're like, oh, I really just did such a fantastic job. You look incredible. And you're like, uh-huh. And then you end up paying them even though you're like, I don't like it. But then you're like, well, you did your job, but I just didn't like what you did. <laughs> I know. And it's like it becomes this thing where you don't want to rain on their parade because yeah. they're like really proud. But I feel like it's this weird like – it's this weird manipulation <laughs> tactics that probably all hairdressers know that they do. Mm-hmm. I feel like they probably instruct them to – really openly compliment their work in hairdressing school yeah probably but yeah Yeah. and then then i've had other people say like well then why did you pay for it if you hated it and i'm like well because they did all that they did like hours of labor yeah i just and i was socialized (laughs) as a fucking woman to say that i liked everything yeah exactly so i was like i guess it's fine and then i would just go home and cry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah 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 too true no Whoa. Okay. Where <laughs> were we? Probably Beast of Burden. Oh, yeah. That. Hmm. So next we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about the domestication of animals as our pets and the fact that we have altered species, different species of animals so much um, that what what should we do with them going forward? I know that um, this is a very active conversation in vegan circles, and I think it's a conversation that's a lot of times had in pretty disturbing ways. Mm-hmm. Um And I recently read a book called Beasts of Burden by Sonora Taylor. I have been speaking about this book to Mexi pretty much every single day (laughs) since I read it because it's just really, really great. Mm -hmm. And um, she has a whole chapter on the domestication of pets. What I found really interesting was that a lot of people, and vegans included, view like domesticated species of pets such as like cows i mean (laughs) (laughs) i would love a pet cow yeah i would love a pet cow too um and she talks about certain species of pets like cats and you know wiener dogs and dwarf rabbits and why are you laughing (laughs) wiener dogs and dwarf rabbits I'm just looking at pictures of dwarf rabbits right now, and they're so fucking cute. Yeah, off air, we just had a whole conversation <laughs> if, about if dwarf rabbits is a thing, and it is a thing. Okay. Oh my god! Um, Everyone, Google dwarf rabbits. You're, wel- oh my you're god, welcome. You're welcome. They're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, right that that we see them as being, you know, unnatural and very dependent and unfit for the world. Mm-hmm. Um. And how. 
that actually reproduces a very ableist way of seeing animals and how it's quite dangerous to see entire uh, species of living beings as unnatural or as dependent and so mm-hmm. inherently less valuable than the rest of the, you know, able-bodied, capable, less dependent population mm-hmm. um, and how that has been used to oppress and kill uh, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um Right, like this whole notion that disabled people have no real place in nature because they wouldn't be able to survive and that the only reason that they're able to live is thanks to people's goodness. Mm. Um, And dependence is also an excuse for exploitation, Mm -hmm. you know, always. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like the fact that dependence has such an extremely negative connotation is also a product of of our individualist culture like this idea that we can just Mm. we're able to survive without being dependent um but the truth is that we're all dependent Mm -hmm. you know to varying degrees it's just that our society structures itself in order to accommodate certain abilities and neglects others Mm -hmm. but we're we're so dependent for irrigation and for food and for like none of us i'm sorry if they parachuted me or if you know, if they dropped me off into the wild, like I wouldn't survive 24 hours, you mm-hmm. know, I'm very dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all are. So, so the, the, the bind it's, it's such a false binary to think that certain people are dependent and others are not because the reality is that we are all, we all exist on a spectrum of dependency. Yeah. I mean, even to think about that ridiculous trope of like, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps or whatever, it's Ugh. like, even people who are in really high positions today, it's like, well, like your mom helped you when you were young. Like they helped you do your of homework. We, like, you know what I mean? We like, start off our lives being extremely dependent and we end our lives being dependent too. Right, exactly. You know? And like your teachers and everything, like you're not just doing this by yourself ever. Right, right. Um, and she makes this great point that the negative consequences of dependency are largely human-made So through economic disenfranchisement, social marginalization, imprisonment, and societal, cultural, and architectural barriers. Mm -hmm. And that also helps construct this false dichotomy of like dependent versus not dependent. And so a much better way to relate to each other would be to see how we mutually benefit and we mutually exist together and we live in a constant relationship of dependency to each other. Um, Because the trope of of strict dependency. First of all, it's false, but it also infantilizes um, the the population, whether it be of humans or non-human animals, and it negates how those people contribute to our families and our communities and our cultures. It really negates and overlooks how those people greatly enrich our lives. Mm-hmm. And she says that she sees it as very dangerous to think that it would be meaningless or counterproductive to support the liberation of these populations that we've domesticated because they are supposedly dependent and damaging. Um, She -hmm. says that she finds the extinction argument very troubling, especially when one recognizes the extent to which these assumptions are based on dependency, naturalness, and quality of life, which have been like used over and over again to devalue the lives of disabled people. Mm -hmm. And that have also been used to further the most atrocious iterations of eugenics. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying that, uh, those populations should, since they're unnatural and since they're supposedly dependent on us should go extinct. Mm -hmm. Um, no, me neither. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, I mean, obviously like you don't have a lot of pets or whatever, but I've always had, dogs i suppose um mm-hmm. and you know how much you love them. i love them so fucking much i mean i don't have them actually yeah. in your voice note before this episode you were like i love my dog so much i don't <laughs> yeah. care if that doesn't make me <laughs> i know well i mean like they're not even mine technically right they're my parents um but i go home a lot and visit them and like they love me so much like they they just freak the fuck out when i come home like they're so happy and then we cuddle and like we do all this fun stuff together that like we both love like, it's not like they're sitting there they're like, oh, I'm being oppressed. Like, I'm I'm forced to do this with this fucking human. Like, of course, you know. And we need to recognize that. <laughs> yeah, like they're so goddamn happy. And like, I understand. Like, I totally understand the moral argument of like, is it moral or is it ethical to you know keep these animals when like we're basically like directing a lot of their lives, right? Like, um. And, you know, I, I understand, you know, some people make the argument that it's like, okay, well, if people go off to work and then these animals are really, really sad and devastated and they're staying of home course. alone, right? Um, oh, people abuse their pets so fucking Right, much. exactly. I mean, there's definitely – I mean, I feel like that's like a situation that's – made more possible under capitalism but maybe not um but just the fact that like if you're seeing it like i own this this pet like because i bought it with money right with- i mean pets are like a product of consumerism right of- it's like it like i bought it like we've moved away from the days of like symbiosis and the fact that like the dogs were like helping the humans and the humans are helping the dogs um but i feel like that doesn't mean you can't still have that kind of a relationship um but i feel like perhaps under capitalism where some people are like well i bought this thing so i own it like maybe that like kind of can lend itself to abuse um although i'm sure there's people who can abuse animals like no matter what like no matter well and the breeding industry is so fucking disgusting this whole concept of like i want a new pet and i want this pet to look this like this way you know supremely pure way it's so true i mean like we should we could do like an expose of like the pet industry and everything Mm. and like pet stores and how disgusting that is so i mean there yeah i mean i completely understand like the morality of it um Mm -hmm. but i just feel like i don't yeah, I, I don't envision a future where we won't have special relationships with animals um, and mm-hmm. like that, you know, we won't have animals that are perhaps like kinship animals that live with us and that like enrich our lives and we enrich theirs. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the crux of that is like recognizing that we that their lives are valuable and that their lives are valuable independently of the fact that we think that they're just overly dependent on us you know i think mm-hmm. that a lot of people think like well i'm affording this this animal a great life because without me they would be dead in 2 seconds mm-hmm. you know um but recognizing and sonora taylor talks about this like recognizing nonverbal modes of communications um and and people's like you know people 
human people who are nonverbal or who are disabled, like learning to recognize like the, their patterns or their body bodily movements to, to learn how to communicate with them and really Mm -hmm. like meet their needs and also like recognize how they enrich our lives Mm -hmm. and how ableism a lot of times manifest by manifests in our society by diagnosing whole categories of people with a certain label. And so assuming that Mm -hmm. we know everything about their quality of life, we know everything about their abilities Mm -hmm. and what they will be able to achieve Mm -hmm. um, in their lives and how these labels and diagnoses um, really dehumanize people and depersonify them and oppress them. And I think that's the the, the same thing with domesticated animals by saying, Mm -hmm. you know, all these... All these animals are just unnatural, and we've bred them in a certain way, and their quality of life is negative, mm-hmm. and so they should all go extinct, or their lives are less valuable. Like mm-hmm. that is incredibly dangerous, and that's mm-hmm. the same thing. That's like stripping someone of their individuality because mm-hmm. we impose a diagnosis on them that is actually really socially constructed, mm-hmm. is not at all um, yeah. cognizant of their their personhood mm-hmm. and so it's really troubling to me when vegans and and right now I'm talking about vegans I'm not saying that they're the only ones that make this argument but I know that some very prominent vegans such as Gary Francione and other abolitionist vegans make the argument that these um that these animals that there's no there's no ethical way to mm-hmm. keep domesticated animals or that they should all go extinct mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah. Reading Sonora Taylor's book really made me think more about how that very argument was rooted in ableism, was rooted in speciesism, and mm-hmm. was very dangerous. I feel like somebody like Gary Francione is um like he's not able to take himself out of the capitalist mind state. Um mm. like I feel like he's not even remotely critical of capitalism at all. So um yeah. like because if you think about like he's thinking, oh, there's no ethical way to have this relationship. And I feel like under capitalism, there probably isn't because at the end of the day, even if I have a wonderful fucking relationship with my dogs, I still purchase them. And so I'm technically own them. So it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily yes. like, um, you know, like when we think about the early humans where wolves and dogs like voluntarily came into their space and then they both helped each other and then they ended up forming relationships and bonds and everything like that. Um, there is that layer of like, well, I, I purchased you, you know what I mean? Um, and so, but I feel like he's not really thinking outside of this capitalist framework. And so if, if we're talking about, you know, post-capitalism or like communism, I feel like, you know, maybe that does open up space for us to have different relationships that, um, that we can think of as more ethical or as at least symbiotic mm-hmm. and not necessarily like completely exploitative. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that this argument is also dangerous because it exempts us from the accountability that we have in making these animals, um, you know, quote unquote, dependent and Mm -hmm. unsustainable and unnatural. These animals were created by humans in environments that are unable to support them and that animals themselves shouldn't be responsible or become scapegoats for our atrocious human choices Mm -hmm. and locating the problem in their physicality Mm -hmm. is so fucked up it really is have a responsibility towards those animals those animals shouldn't become the symbol of like what's unsustainable what's unsustainable is us right you know yeah and our political economy right Yeah. yeah yeah i meant to say that i'm not yeah, I was like, that just sounds like I think all of humanity is equally responsible for this shit that we created. <laughs> yeah, but we're not. <laughs>
<laughs> nope. Um, yeah, I just wanted to like mention, I don't know if now's the time to mention that like when we talk about domesticated, like we're talking specifically now about pets, right? Um, but we are mm-hmm. talking about domesticated animals more broadly. But I think like a common argument that I get from non-vegans who like come across my work and my channel or whatever is that, well, what the hell are we going to do with the like 40 billion land animals that are living in the world today? Are we just going to let them like live and support them and let them overrun our resources and everything? And it's just like, no, like we've been talking this entire episode, like the, in the question, he, he framed it as if we were already in a communist utopia. So we're already post-capitalism. That's what we're talking about here. Um, but in terms yeah and we talked about just the history of domestication right exactly but like if we're thinking about today and like the scale of factory farming we're not thinking that all of those animals are we're just going to keep them and we have a responsibility to keep them like we're thinking that like over time like no one's going to be going vegan overnight we're thinking of this as a gradual shift right like it's not going to happen like that so over time as demand for meat specifically as demand for meat from factory farms or from like for eggs from like factory farms as that decreases and decreases then slowly you know those businesses are going to go out of business they're not going to be producing all of those land animals so we're not going to ever be in a situation where there's like 50 billion cattle that we just don't know what the fuck to do with Right. Like, Mm -hmm. like we're talking about, (laughs) we're talking about uh, a move away from that factory model. And then, you know, thinking about, yeah, I mean, like the, the hill drives in Thailand, thinking about India, thinking about different formations where there are still domesticated animals, but it's not a huge factory farm with billions that are just waiting to go to slaughter. Um, That's not what we're talking about. So just want to, and I actually feel like, and I actually feel like you're precisely getting, to the point that I just made of you're, um, you're situating the problem with our domestication of animals and our species as system in the system, like not in the biological existence of a certain bread and mm-hmm. alter, you know, quote unquote, unnatural animal. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's really problematic when people start to say like, start to think that it's the animals themselves that are unsustainable. Right, like right. even like sometimes I, I have an issue with how people talk about like cow farts, you know, and how like all, <laughs> like all the shit that the cows are producing. I'm like, no, 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 the cows are fine. Right. Like the problem is the system of like breeding and exploitation that we've created, mm-hmm. a, you know, around them. Like, let's not, let's, let's not use them as scapegoats for mm-hmm. what, what we've done, you know? Right. I mean, obviously the, the problem is factory farming and capitalism that produces the system where we have 40 billion, like, I don't know, I'm just throwing out this number. Well, we, we have like, we have like billions of cattle right. Can, like in this small enclosed area eating food that they're not supposed to be eating eating corn grain soy and then obviously yeah farting <laughs> and then create right. creating methane but i'm like that has nothing to do with a cow as a species that has to do with our system so mm-hmm. we're like yeah i just want to make clear that like a lot of what we're talking about we're already thinking about like post-capitalism and like mm-hmm. people moving towards veganism but that that doesn't mean that we're not going to have any you know, relationships with animals or any um, right. domestication, etc. Like we are animals. Humans are animals. We are part of an ecosystem. We like to pretend that we're not. We, we like to shut ourselves into our like modern houses and pump ourselves full of air conditioning and like get away from the natural, you know, <laughs> everything. Um, 
but we're animals. And so like, we have to conceive of ourselves as, as part of that ecosystem and just, you know, reevaluate how we're going to have relationships with other species, but we're going to have them mm-hmm. and we're going to benefit and other species are also going to benefit. But yeah. Yeah. And this post-capitalist system or this, this other way of relating to animals needs to be guided by a vision of, you know, like mutually beneficial relationships mm-hmm. and of compassion and of sustainability. And I really think that until those questions become the central point of our reflections, we really we really have no idea what the future could look like. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like the sky is the limit if that is really what all of our reflections and what our systems are responding to, you mm-hmm. know, is like freedom and equality. Mm-hmm. Um, and one question actually she asks in the book is uh, – when rethinking our relationship to domesticated animals, she says, do we really want to enact another coercive force over their individual lives and species by leading them to extinction based on the assumption that their lives are less worth living than wild animals? I find the idea that the solution to the wrongs of domestication is to erase the very population we have harmed unsettling. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that that is very true. I think that a lot of times we think that we can just right our wrongs by eradicating mm-hmm. what what we've done. Yeah. But I think that that's an attitude that is pervasive towards all the shit we've done with capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know that we can just that, that that we can just obliterate a certain population or obliterate a certain way of being and just like start start fresh. Mm-hmm. You know, and like start with innovation. But it's like no, you can't. Yeah. You can't do that. As I talked about earlier, like everything is input and output. There's nothing that's just created yeah. or that's just given up. Like mm-hmm. that's not how our ecosystem works. Right. You know, the repercussions are going to bite you in the ass at some point. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest problems that nobody sees themselves as part of an ecosystem. Nobody. No. And nobody understands what that means. So nope. and that, that's true of capitalism. That's true of like everything that we're talking about today. Um, mm mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I just want to yeah, I just want to make clear that like for people who are living privileged lives and who do not have any semblance of a symbiotic relationship with like prey animals, that like we're not saying that it's fine if you go out to the grocery store and just buy meat. Like we're not saying that that's like ethical in, oh my in God, the slightest. I feel like no one's gonna get that impression. Yeah, but I completely agree. Yeah, I just feel like there's definitely people who will take this and be like, "Oh well, good, good." Like yeah, like I can buy my meat from an ethical local farmer, and it's like, no, girl, you can't. Mm-mm. No, that's not yeah. that's not what we're saying at all. You should listen to our first episode. <laughs> yeah, about that's really not what we're saying at all. <laughs> No, no, I think it's just about rethinking our relationship to animals and reorganizing our species system Mm -hmm. in a way that acknowledges how much our species system is formed by like the creation of agriculture, civilization, capitalism, Mm -hmm. everything, you know, and I, I really don't. I don't know how my relationship would look like to the ecosystem and to every person who's in the ecosystem Mm -hmm. if I hadn't if I, if this wasn't the only model that I had experience with. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And so this is why we need to like tear it the fuck to the ground and Mm -hmm. rebuild something that's more sensible. And so these are Mm -hmm. important conversations for us to have to think about like, well, what is more sensible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to leave off with a quote by Sonora Taylor, um, that I thought was really great. It's sort of long. It's going to take like two minutes, but it's really interesting, (laughs) I swear. So she says, 
Instead of continuing to exploit animals or leading them to extinction, we could realize our responsibility to these animals we have co-evolved with and whom we also helped create. We could take seriously the ways domesticated animals contribute to our lives and world in ways that don't involve slaughter. We could recognize our mutual dependence, our mutual vulnerability, and our mutual drive for life. We could also start listening to what those who need care are communicating about their own lives, feelings, and the care they are receiving. For better or for worse, our co-evolution with domesticated species have created animals with whom we are deeply entangled, both ecologically and emotionally. These animals remind us that we ourselves are part of nature but they also remind us that we are capable of deep coercion and exploitation, that we too have often dominated those we deem dependent and vulnerable. To do right by these animals now means respecting their dependence, their interdependence, and indeed their naturalness as beings who have just as much of a right to live out their lives on this planet as we do. Ah, oh, beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? So good. I just, I just love this book so much. I feel like I want to read it, but I feel like I already have since you've told me about yeah. it. <laughs> Quick plug: I'm about to release like a 30 minute video on my channel about it. So. I'm so excited. So yeah, but it's still. I mean, I still only cover like a fraction of it because mm -hmm. it's it's really great. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for such an interesting series of questions mm -hmm. that was really great mm -hmm. um and yeah thank you to everyone who sent in their questions and we'll definitely keep those on file and be revisiting those in the future right and i feel like now is a good time to say that we just have a rolling admission for questions how about that yeah, sure yeah yeah for sure <laughs> like you can always email the vegan vanguard we'll keep them on file mm -hmm. Because even though we envisioned at first, we were like, maybe we should solicit questions and answer three of them. It turned out that there was a question that we just wanted to dedicate a whole episode to. And mm -hmm. there's several questions. There's actually like several we, questions that I feel yeah, like we could like do. Like carceral a feminism. Yes. I want to do a full um, episode on that. Yeah. And there's one about like depression and activist fatigue and everything. Yes. It's very good. And effective altruism. Effective God, altruism. Yeah. There's a <laughs> lot of them actually. So, And robots. <laughs> And robots, yeah. yeah. So if you want to send in questions, mm -hmm. they will influence what we choose to cover in the future. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So thanks for all the input and all of the support via Patreon and yeah, via Twitter and everything. Um, that's another great way to support the show is to share our episodes mm -hmm. via your social networks and with your friends. So yeah, thank you so much. I think I'm going to get Twitter soon. Do it. I think that might be right. But then I'm, I'm thinking like that is going to represent a considerable chunk of hours that I'm going to spend on the computer and my phone that I wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. They're kind of like fun hours though. You just kind of check in and you're like, oh man, this is funny. I know, but I'm already trying to emancipate myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, well you've chosen the really wrong I mean, profession. you honestly give me FOMO whenever you talk about Twitter because I feel like you have all these great conversations and... You can keep up with even how the show is being shared a lot better. People are far more like responsive on Twitter than they are on Facebook. Like I have like mm. hardly any followers on Facebook, but like a lot of people actually give a shit on, on Twitter. Mm. All right. Well, yeah. thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thank you. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>